welcome to Web3 Unpacked. I'm your host, Rich Pasqua, founder and CEO of ARC. Each week we unpack the Web3 revolution. Join us as we discover and explore the people, projects, and visionaries building the trusted web. Hello and welcome to Web3 Unpacked. I'm your host, Rich Pasqua, with my co-host, Matt Sky. Today we are thrilled to have David Garrity of FIO here, cybersecurity expert. He's going to help us unpack the world of cybersecurity as it relates to 2.0 and beyond into 3.0. David, it's great to have you here. Thank you. Rich and Matt, thank you very much for having me on. Thanks. And David, Excellent. so I guess uh, I think to kick things off, maybe even before we get into FIO, uh, tell us about your background. It, it, you know, you have so many different things you've done in terms of cybersecurity, working as an analyst, uh, building companies. Uh, let's maybe dive into that a little bit. Sure. Um, you know, certainly MBA, uh, then worked on Wall Street uh, for a couple of decades. Focus was on technology research. Uh, the first area I focused on was cellular telephones. And this was back um, at a time and a date I don't want to mention because it's so long ago. Um, but nonetheless, it was an emerging technology at the time. And uh, certainly have had a great interest in terms of the various waves of technology innovation that have been taking place. Um, you know, looking specifically at FIO, which stands for For Your Eyes Only, uh, and, and what we do, we do provide identity protection and threat management and domain monitoring uh, for Web3 companies primarily. Uh, we also do code reviews for also DeFi projects to make sure that they're cyber secure. Um, but, you know, the opportunity that we saw it, that as the global economy is increasingly digitizing, Web3 is the path of the future. We do think that, you know, critical functions, financial services, are going to be moving over towards Web3. But first and foremost, they do need to be cyber secure. So, David, if you can tell us, okay, so you've had this very, very interesting and, and maybe even legacy tech background in some ways. And now what got you into blockchain? What got you into what is really maybe one of the most significant developments of, of the web itself? Well, what led towards that, and it was a collaboration um, back around 2016, 2017, with uh, my chief technology officer, Thomas Olofsson. We were both advising a project that was looking at doing quantum encryption. And as we're looking now at the advent of quantum computers, obviously the amount of computing power that can be brought to bear obviously is serving to render current cybersecurity standards, such as RSA, obsolete. Um, you know, to this extent, being able to look at the blockchain, which has a higher order of complexity, is probably the way to go in which most applications that are critical uh, are, are going to be delivered, and increasingly so over the next five to ten years. We are monitoring with interest how rapidly quantum computing uh, is making its way into the marketplace, but we think that given the nature of quantum computing and given that a lot of the things are going to be going on in the background, you're not really going to know what's going on below the surface of the water. What we're hearing about quantum computing is really like the tip of the iceberg in this case. But if people want to be safe or secure um, with their information, moving over to a blockchain platform uh, is going to be critical in our view. Yeah, quantum computing is uh, wildly fascinating yet scary at the same time because it's technically it's the only thing that could actually get through uh, blockchain itself, correct? 
With yeah, given enough time and computing power, but arguably you can find ways to dynamically manage credentials. Um, as well as also other, you know, security protocols, which would make it more difficult. Um, or, you know, you try to minimize the attack surface. And not only do you try to minimize the attack surface, but you also try to make what you've got protecting an enterprise or an individual more dynamic. Uh, moving mm -hmm. targets are basically harder to hit. And I think the case remains that this will be certainly so, whether it's quantum computing or whether it's current computing standards. Got you, got you, and and David, you you were you were hitting on this before, and I think for our audience, they'd be interested in understanding, kind of like maybe the 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 corporate adoption curve. Where is where are you seeing it right now, and and then a couple of years out, where do you see it? Well, we've been doing some work, and actually started ourselves off um, on our consulting practice back in 2018, working with Fortune 500 companies around supply chain applications. And mm. a lot of that was taking place around sustainability or being able to prove the sustainability of their own supply chain practices. We just recently finished doing work with Shell uh, around a program that they've developed and now rolled out for sustainable aviation fuel. And this is going to allow airlines and corporations to basically obtain aviation fuel that has been developed from sustainable sourcing uh, and get environmental credits for that. And we think that this is something that obviously we support uh, and we're happy to see that blockchain and Web3 are actually starting to do uh, work in that direction. Yeah, well, it's incredible to see that real world utility and especially at these major, major companies at this point. This is going well beyond uh, the board apes <laughs> in terms of a, a quick image. Uh, David, when you look at that kind of adoption, are you seeing across all fields this similar kind of use of blockchain? Um, you know, it's, it's starting to happen in certain areas. I mean, clearly away from things such as aviation fuel, obviously within financial services, you're starting to see a, a compression of further settlement periods. So, you know, the ability to move transactions faster and at lower cost is certainly significant. We know that one of the better use cases for blockchain and, and more specifically for cryptocurrencies had been around, you know, cross-border transfers uh, where costs were high and settlement periods were long. And so from that standpoint, services, financial services, critical in this area. But we're starting to see other areas, such as we mentioned, bringing on the adoption curve. Mm. Yeah. So a big part of, I think, what's happening and what maybe is, is holding people back from blockchain is that cybersecurity angle. Uh, what are the biggest challenges we're seeing right now in Web3, especially as you're mentioning quantum computing and whatnot? Well, you know, it, it goes back actually to looking at what has been kind of a root cause for cyber insecurity. And, and it basically boils down to how poorly people are managing their own credentials and the extent to which their credentials have actually been exposed. You know, over 80% of cyber attacks take place because of poor identity protection. And so any steps that can be taken in that area to improve um, certainly is going to be critical. And especially so when we start to look at DeFi, we can say that, you know, based upon, I think, numbers that Chainalysis came out with about 30% of the hacks came about because of flaws in terms of smart contract logic. But that leaves the other 70% of attacks that were taking place due to basically poor credential management and other elements such as that. Now, we know 
while we can look at DeFi as being an area of great promise, the issue around its acceptance is it has to be cyber secure and it has to limit the ability for hackers to come in and steal millions, if not billions of dollars of value uh, within a very, very short time, like 60 seconds. Wow. Do you see, do you see that happening, those vulnerabilities happening on the kind of the 2.0 interface between, you know, between 2.0 and 3.0 technologies? Is that the gap, the uh, exploit gap there? Well, I mean, to the extent that technology is built as a stack where you're basically putting layer on top of pre-existing layers, to the extent that hasn't necessarily been adequate integration that takes place, you know, there are a number of possible vectors for it, an attack to take. You know, one of the things we would say specifically looking at DeFi, uh, while it may not necessarily be a, a legacy technology issue, one of the areas where there really have been significant taps have been basically been in the applications building bridges between different protocols. And these yeah. bridges, you know, have seen significant attacks. I think Wormhole was one earlier this year where $360 million was taken. Fortunately, that wasn't a project that we had done any code review or code audit work on. That, that's really interesting because what a lot of people don't really understand is that Building an, you know, a DAP or an environment uh, for a specific application is not just one protocol. It's multiple protocols laying, like you're saying, a tech stack that kind of communicates with itself uh, in a pretty sophisticated way. And what goes, in, what goes into the blockchain audits that you do? That seems like an extremely intensive process, right? Well, the first thing that we'll do typically is we'll do you know, a threat model. Uh, and we'll map out what the logic is, and we'll look for where there may be vulnerabilities or weaknesses in the logic that was developed and coded uh, for the project. You know, one thing that we do note is that coders in developing applications can sometimes be relying upon third-party libraries of code. Um, those third-party libraries themselves may not necessarily be audited, and to the extent that they're just drawing on an external resource, they may be introducing unwittingly uh, a weakness that can obviously threaten the viability of their own project. Rich, this is something we've talked about a lot in terms of those uh, third-party elements, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're working with some protocols now that, you know, they're creating their own code bases, but... And they're putting security checks in place as they go, and everything is kind of validated within a smaller group and then disseminated through through the network. But I could see this, you know, just being a day-to-day -to -day tool that everyone will have to start to either use, use the audit or actually implement into their systems at some point for absolute security. So, yeah. And it really I mean, not only what we do is, you know, to provide the, the, the audit or the review of the code, but we also work to help projects protect themselves in terms of, you know, domain intelligence or threat monitoring uh, on a real time basis. So rather than a DeFi project only be as good as it last audit, we're trying to provide more holistic approach as far as providing overall protection. Nice. How does that break? How does that back down or breakdown work? Uh, overall protection, continuous monitoring versus a full-on audit. What's the distinction between those two? 
Well, in, in audits where you're going in and specifically, you know, setting a scope for the review and then going through and analyzing the software code and the logic structure um, behind it. When we talk about doing, you know, domain intelligence and threat monitoring, we have a database of, you know, over 20 billion leaked credentials, uh, which has been aggregated over about the last 10 years. And certainly in there, we can help to identify, you know, what are the threat actors, and we can also identify, you know, which domains have been subject to more penetration than not. And we can even go down to the individual level with these exposed credentials and see who in an organization or a project may represent a risk to the extent that they haven't necessarily, you know, had adequate cybersecurity hygiene to speak of. Mm. And the, and and these audits, I would imagine, from a product development standpoint for you, FIO, is um, ev almost every day you're probably seeing new features and functionality that you can actually add to your 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 uh, application suite. Correct. We're always looking for a way to develop tools to make the auditing process go faster. Uh, you know, productivity obviously is one thing that technology helps support. And in this case, we know that people are interested in getting to the market, but we also think that, you know, cybersecurity has to be a necessary condition for any project going into the marketplace to actually get user trust. So even though there is a certain amount of automation that's starting to develop in the code review area, um, you know, our belief and our experiences that a lot of the tools that are out there right now don't really capture uh, the more complicated weaknesses or vulnerabilities in a project. So you can start with tools to try to eliminate, you know, sort of the low-hanging fruit. But if you really want to go through and make sure that the structure is sound, uh, a more in-depth code audit is required. And typically it requires not just one auditor, uh, but we work in conjunction with other firms because obviously we think we are of the belief uh, that, you know, two sets of eyes are better than one. Absolutely. Can you give us a breakdown of like a, maybe a case study? Just curious. Like you worked with some major players, Solana and whatnot, right? Certainly. Um, I mean, we've been working with, for example, the Cardano Foundation. Um, and what we've done with Cardano is we have collaborated with them in terms of setting standards and routines for how to go about actually doing a cybersecurity review. Um, and there's information to that effect that's on our website and our company blog that, you know, if people want to go in and look at it, this is a real life example of what we've done with, you know, probably one of the major layer one protocols out there. Mm. So you, you work with them on kind of a consultancy level? Is that it? Or did you actually implement tools for them to use on a daily basis? Generally, we work with our clients on a retainer basis. Um, and, you know, to the extent that we have built relationships with the various foundations behind the various layer ones, um, you know, we've been very fortunate in this regard to be able to consult and advise on some of the standards that are being developed and then implemented within each one of the protocols. When we look at cybersecurity and when we look at web3 and we look at blockchain i think this is the lost topic everyone is so excited with so much enthusiasm about jumping in and this is the next generation but when you look <laughs> at that institutional interest without these basic guardrails uh i don't think it's going to happen and and what i'm curious is when people are are working with you at fio or just in general is the space 
is it mature enough for big institutions in general, or are we not quite there yet? Is it, is it kind of in development? Where are we in that process for mass adoption? We're still in, we're still in the process of institutionalizing uh, Web3, um, either one from the development of applications by companies, or if you were to look at institutional investors, you know, looking at cryptocurrencies as an asset class. Um, I mean, granted, the valuations have come down since last November, but you're still looking at about a trillion dollars worth of value uh, that's in within cryptocurrencies overall. And there's been a greater interest by institutional investors. However, um, you know, institutional investors have fiduciary duties um, to their clients and, you know, they can't afford to put capital to work in a project where, you know, it could be hacked and, you know, billions of dollars could vanish in short order. So, you know, in that regard, even though there's a great interest on the part of DeFi projects to rush forward and to get to market, um, if they lack this kind of cybersecurity um, threshold being met, uh, it, it'll make it far more difficult for them to scale. At the same time, uh, you're also starting to see from a regulatory standpoint, um, you know, much greater encouragement, whether it's within Congress to develop regulations or whether it's on the part of say the Securities and Exchange Commission here in the US to require one uh, token issuers to you know, understand that they are issuing securities and then also the requirements of the SEC on issuers, not just of tokens, but of most securities, all securities, to be more forthcoming in terms of what kind of cybersecurity protections do they actually have. And you're actually starting to see requirements that uh, members of the board of directors uh, for issuers have a cybersecurity background. So this is becoming that's more important, not only within the context of Web3, but if we were looking in the context of, say, ESG investing, cybersecurity is considered part of governance, which would be the G in ESG. Mm. Yeah, it's funny because the more we, you know, the way I see it a little bit is the more we advance with technology, the same stop gaps and checkpoints or checks and balances still need or similar checks and balances still need to be put in place. And I think there's um there's a common misconception that, oh, you know, Web3 fixes everything. Cryptography is the be all and end all. But to your point earlier, there are these gaps we always have to watch for. Um, for exploits and whatnot. But it is a common misconception that, you know, everything is, you know, buttoned up and everything's going to be secure. And it really, really isn't. It's just attacks will become more sophisticated. Certainly. And, you know, as we know, given the amounts of capital of money uh, that have been lost in terms of these uh, various hacks, obviously, you know, part of that money is going to fund the capability on the hacker's side to further up their game. So from this standpoint, you know, you are looking at a conflict that's fighting itself, that's working itself out, if you will, in the shadows and behind what we're doing here with Web3. Yeah. It is a very covert thing. Uh, where, I guess, what are the big vulnerabilities that you keep seeing? What are, what are the, like the common ones you keep encountering or even the most challenging ones? I would say, you know, maybe the biggest one that we have is basically human nature. Um, you know, if we looked in, in cybersecurity, if we look in cryptocurrencies, um, obviously there was a lot of being a lot of money being made very quickly. Uh, so one might argue that in uh, the dash for cash, 
people decided that they were going to cut some corners and that, you know, cybersecurity, you know, while it was, you know, in their view, it was nice to have. No, they really needed to have it unless, you know, unless all they wanted to do was to basically have a very quick kind of um, pump and dump scheme. Uh, I guess that's a lesson we've learned the hard way, huh? <laughs> the, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> most likely, most likely. The real issue here is that if you're going to have something that's stable, that's going to scale, that's going to draw institutional interest, or that's going to have enterprise adoption, uh, there are baseline requirements that need to be met. And, you know, it's very, very difficult to make the argument that cybersecurity is not one of them. Mm. I wonder um, when you're having conversations with institutions, uh, are they are they aware at this point and begging for that security or are you kind of selling them on that security still? Are you telling them, hey, this is more important than you realize? I think that people just look at the news flow, you know, look at the headlines that have come out over you know the past 12, 24, 36 months and just see that you know, the size of the hacks involved have not gotten any smaller. Uh, they've become more frequent. And you know, in that regard, there is a clear definable risk uh, in, to being involved in this sector uh, as an investor. So in this regard, you know, they are starting to consider this clearly part of their necessary due diligence in considering any project. We also note at the same time that investors are interested in investing in security companies on their own. Um, so mm -hmm. from that standpoint, you know, we've seen that while there has been valuation compression in other areas as financial markets have, you know, gone into a decline around higher interest rates within the field of VC investing, uh, there remains very, very strong interest in cybersecurity, particularly as it pertains to Web3. Yeah. I think um, from a, from an investment standpoint, and we have a bit of that behind us with River Capital Holdings and Ventures. It is it now becomes top of mind security, and when you're investing in a, in a DAP apps or a company or you know being partial owners in a, an organization, we lift the hood from a business standpoint, but it becomes more detailed for us. Now we have to kind of go in more. And one of the top line questions is, how is your product secure? It, especially if it's a DeFi product. Um, how are you guaranteeing this? Are you, you know, um, backing uh, your system with stable coins or whatnot? And how are those transactions and arbitrage models put together? Um, because that th that is in itself uh, the arbitrage models with cer certain stable coins are really a big point of of contention and security. Uh, but we're seeing it on on the, the the venture side where we're just digging. We have to dig deeper just to make a, a simple you know business decision. As there uh, as the attacks are um, upgrading, you have to continue to upgrade on your side. Uh, what kind of new tools are you deploying? And, and maybe you can't even say what all those new tools are, but what would those tools be? And when you present those to say a client who's working with you, how can you ensure that they are now secure? That How can you provide that verification on your side? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned earlier in our discussion, it's we work and, and recommend highly uh, that clients work with more than one review firm. Um, in that what we do is essentially being done on a best efforts basis. Um, obviously, you know, we 
are mindful of what the risks are that are involved in terms of the size of these hacks. And so all we can say is that we can do things on a best efforts basis. We can also point to our track record with respect to the projects that we've worked on, um, you know, the fact that, knock on wood, uh, they have not yet been hacked, although that's always going to be a matter of when, <laughs> not if. But so far, we've been very fortunate in the performance that we've had. Um, and, you know, so from that standpoint, we can say that there's a track record. We can show directions in which we're working to become more efficient with the process that we have to go through and review. Uh, and to be honest with you, you know, some of the development work we're doing is proprietary. Um, it may be possible on our part that we'll consider doing patenting uh, of some of the developments. And so as a result, yes, some of these things have to remain sort of under wraps for the time being. Now, David, just, you know, as we kind of scratch the surface and go a little deeper with cybersecurity, how how do you feel AI, the, the introduction of AI and other technologies like uh, VR and, you know, metaverse and all that stuff, how do you think that will impact or compound security efforts moving well, forward? Know, we're, we're already using the machine learning um, on our own in, in terms of, you know, taking the data sets that we have, um, and, you know, becoming more efficient in terms of recognizing patterns. And, you know, it does go into sort of the automation uh, aspects that we were talking about previously. Uh, you know, looking at, at VR, um, you know, certainly if you could have a good representation with respect to a tech stack and, you know, see from a visual standpoint where there might be vulnerabilities that could help as far as threat modeling or threat mapping uh, is concerned. You know, relative to discussing the metaverse, obviously having, you know, NFTs themselves um, are not secure. And, and Bill Murray knows that. And obviously a lot of other people who are on OpenSea know about that as well. Um, mm. So, you know, from that standpoint, that there grows to be, continues to be a growing need. One other element I would say, a, apart from all this, just talk, apart from talking about um, technology advances, is that even as these technologies are advancing and you have products such as NFTs or you have DeFi applications, you know, cybersecurity we say is important. One other thing you're going to be looking at here as a requirement potentially is from the side of insurance. If you talk to insurance carriers and you look at the cost of cybersecurity insurance or you look at, you know, trying to get loss, um, you know, loss coverage, risk coverage on this, that's becoming increasingly expensive, and it's most likely you're going to have some interesting um, motives or motivations, if you will, by the insurance carriers themselves to go to their clients and say, look, you need to provide us with evidence that you've met a certain minimum threshold requirement uh, for cybersecurity protection within your own projects. Yeah, interesting. They're, they're, they're creating their own checks and balances for their side, too. That's that's very interesting. I've got to rewind a second, I, I think, because I think a lot of people don't understand this. Uh, you, you say NFTs are not inherently secure. Can you detail maybe for people curious about that in what way and uh, maybe how we can move toward more security in that area? Well, I mean, it, it boils down to sort of what do you do to protect any account that you have? I mean, the NFT itself is something that's held in a wallet. And if wallets themselves are not secure or if the custodian um, that you're keeping your NFTs with um, is not secure. You know, that's where the risks are. 
you know, the NFT itself, you know, may also be subject to possible replication. Um, you know, there have been some instances of that, but, you know, it's more often than not wallets are insecure and the custodians aren't necessarily proper in terms of the security mm -hmm. measures that they're taking. David, when you say replicated, NFTs are being replicated, are you talking about someone steals some meta information and the, and maybe the visual or audible uh, asset itself and then remints it, or is it just completely stolen? First, I think it would be completely stolen. And then there's yeah. another issue here is that, you know, to what extent? I mean, there hasn't been anything, I think, in history that's had value where it hasn't invited knockoffs of one kind <laughs> or another. You know, how many times do you go down to Canal Street in lower Manhattan and see like, you know, oh, this is a Gucci bag. Well, no, it's not really. But, you know, fine. You can think it is. Right. Inter let's do a breakdown just quickly, if that's OK, on some of the products, because you, you have a, a, a very interesting suite. So maybe you could break down for us FIO identity and then break for us break down for us uh, the other FIO domain intelligence. And then we'll revisit blockchain security a little bit in a little deeper way. But maybe starting with FIO identity. Sure. In the case of FIO identity, I mean, this is what we call FIO ID, and it's to give individuals essentially for free um, access to our tools to, you know, improve their password protection, which basically means we have a patented process using public and private keys to secure people's information. This is not stored in any kind of a database. It's actually on the blockchain. And, you know, in contrast to other companies, say, such as a LastPass, who does have a centralized database that has been hacked, this mm -hmm. would not happen with us. Now, this is something in terms of FIO ID that we typically will offer to, say, if we were to go to a DeFi protocol, say Cardano, and we were to provide them with FIO domain intelligence, what we would also try to provide all the users in their ecosystem is FIO ID that would go along as part of that. So people can still use FIO ID on their own. You can actually go to our website. We have a beta link. Um, you can download it and test it. We have mobile versions uh, for both Android and Apple that are available. But this is something that we think <clears throat> security is a human right. It should be considered as such. And you know we put our best foot forward to make our product available. Obviously, there is an intention on our part to provide other value-added services above and beyond that. But we think at a base level, what we do with FIO ID is something that really is helpful um, to, to not just enterprises, which is really more FIO DI, but on the individual level as well. Now, looking at FIO domain intelligence or FIO DI, there we're using you know, our database um, and our dark web monitoring to provide you know, real-time protection against threats that may be developing against either, you know, individuals within an organization or their, you know, internet domains, or say in the case of um, a hospital, if you had um, medical devices that were connected to the internet, you know, all these IoT devices have their own addresses and they themselves, as we know, can be subject to being hacked. So what we have with FIODI as well as with FIOID, um, is something that has a fairly broad range of applications. When you um, look at the different enterprise level 
applications of, of your technology? And then when you're looking at people at a smaller level, what are the differences in terms of security concerns? Because I assume when we're talking about FIO ID, an individual is thinking about very different uh, concerns than a mass organization. Well, I mean, individuals obviously want to make sure that their you know, personal information, whether it's their bank account, credit cards, um, that those are all secure. Um, you know, obviously, what we do is to make sure that all those elements um, can be managed by the FIO passkey. And, you know, this is something that we don't know what it is. We've got it written on the blockchain. Only the user has access to it. And so this is something that they can take with them. Um, you know, on whatever device it is that they're using. So you don't necessarily have to say in the case of any protection that Google came up with, you'd have to be going into Google's computing environment. If you were to do something within Apple, you'd be restricting yourself within Apple's computing environment. Our idea here with FIOID is to be computing environment agnostic. So you can mm -hmm. basically port this across any device that you're using. Interesting. It, does it work with hardware wallets as well, like a treasure or something like that? We have applications that we're developing in that area. Awesome. Wow, that's that's really cool. To kind of keep it, you know, in cold storage would be amazing, just like, you know, any other crypto. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, it's really incredible. It's the most significant thing when you think about it. When we're talking about Web3, we're talking about building the trusted web. And, we, you know, we, we hear about the soulbound wallet and more and more of our identities going online. And right now, we, like you were mentioning, like with the LastPass situation, it's just a reminder that we really are bound to certain companies. But it seems like with this direction, when we move to blockchain, when our own identities, our own security is platform agnostic, uh, then we truly own our data, right? That is basically the idea. Uh, we do think that with Web3, and we're trying to be ourselves a Web3 company, which means that we need <laughs> to empower the individual first and foremost. Um, so, you know, if we can take care of protected identity in that regard, if we can put in place the foundation where people having control of their data can find ways to best gain value from that, or at least to have privacy and protection around that. And I think that that is something that everyone at a certain core level um, will think is important. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting to hear you talk about this because really in essence, you're staying true to the idea, the core idea of blockchain, meaning the individual is taking back the rights of their information and gaining more control. They're, you know, the individuals are offering data or informa personal information as needed not the other way around whereas now we're the pro we are the product now we will the, the roles will be reversed and we will be interacting with products and brands and services more sir i mean individuals have to be able to exercise their own autonomy and their own discretion i mean there has to be a matter of choice uh mm -hmm. and consumers individuals have to be free to exercise that awesome good good yeah, because a lot of uh, a lot of these, you know, DeFi companies and whatnot, they almost kind of forget what this whole thing is about, right? It's not a, a cash grab. I mean, in certain cases it is, but it's not all about cash. It is about the idea of freedom and autonomy, you know? So it's good to hear that you guys are staying the course. <laughs> 
haven't been distracted as of yet. We, you know, didn't decide to go down the route of having an ICO ourselves. Uh, we, we think that there are various important use cases for cryptocurrency, but this was something that we didn't really think was appropriate for us. Wow. Okay, good. Now, how I, I'm just curious uh, for my own sake, um, how are you working with, say, the government and or regulations and regulators? Um, are they getting in the mix a little bit? If so, how hard or fast? Um, yeah, my colleague, uh, Michael Bjorn, actually is over in Strasbourg today and is participating in a forum uh, which is focusing on cybersecurity. And it, it's looking at both, you know, government representatives are there. Um, also, our chief technology officer, Thomas Olofsson, has a cybersecurity conference that's going to be taking place next week up in Stockholm. Um, mm. And that's been going, this will be the 20th year that's been happening. Um, wow. So there'll be people who are coming in from government there uh, also. And, you know, in terms of some of the discussion that we've had um, as an organization, we've worked with organizations such as the Global Blockchain Business Council. Um, you know, our chief revenue officer, Jim Loperfito, is the co-chair of their working group on digital identity. Um, so, you know, from that standpoint, we have been involved in some of the bodies that are serving to help develop standards uh, that hopefully will find their way into, you know, the regulatory frameworks that we think have to come up around Web3 in order to further guide its development. And then in the process, not only guiding its development, but helping its development accelerate. Awesome. Yeah, it's refreshing to hear guys like you kind of influencing up and across. So that's great. Good news. I know a lot of people always get very scared when they hear regulation, although it is, I think, admittedly necessary for the space to grow. What what type of uh, regulations would you like to see? What uh, you know? What are you seeing as well? Well, we, we think in terms of just establishing the principle of having a sandbox within which people can innovate um, is important. And we, we think in that regard to allow that kind of regulatory space is to, you know, allow the elements that are within the marketplace to actually prove out what models and what approaches may actually be better than others. Now, you know, I think if we wanted to look at sort of from the investment side of it, we do think that, you know, having some sort of level of securities protection, um, you have it in the case with individual investors investing in equities in stocks and bonds. The, the Securities Investment Investor Protection Corporation, or SIPC, uh, is an element uh, that's important and that most regular brokerage companies or exchanges will offer. We don't necessarily see anything like that as of yet uh, for the exchanges, you know, such as Coinbase. And obviously anybody who had money that had been tied up in Celsius would wish that there had been an SIPC wow. that they could go back to to kind of help them recover, you know, the monies that they had allocated there. So I, th I think that, you know, while a regulatory sandbox on the one hand may be nice, we think that there are certain baseline protections for investors, um, a la an SIPC, uh, that clearly are desirable. And I, I think that, you know, something will be done in that regard, perhaps not during the current Congress, but I would say when we look towards 2023, um, the time will be ripe, I think, to have something put in place. Mm. I think that'll just offer a bit more confidence to investors and developers across the board. So, yeah. Really it really feels like the regulatory piece is the final piece in some ways for us to to see true mass adoption and acceleration. 
Um, and you're ahead of the game, which is really impressive. I want to jump around just a little bit because I, you, you seem like you very often, David, have had a good uh, foresight. And I noticed like five years ago, you were writing about how investors needed to pay more attention to cryptocurrencies. Uh, those were a piece were invested. Uh, I think it was a Yahoo Finance piece. But uh, what gave you that insight back then? And then what what is, uh, you know, if you put your Nostradamus hat on, what do you see in the pipeline that we're not seeing today? What technological advancements should we be paying attention to? Sure. Yeah, I mean, five years ago, um, I was actually doing some consulting work uh, for the World Bank in Sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, I was looking at the issue around sort of banking the unbanked financial inclusion. And one thing that's distinguishing about Africa uh, in contrast to other areas of the world was that this development around mobile money uh, had come up in Kenya uh, starting back in, what, 2007, and then was starting to accelerate in terms of its development. And one of the things that I saw as part of doing this work was just to see, you know, the level of cross-border transfers, which is, you know, in terms of business terms, it's a $600 billion a year business. And, you know, the transfer fees were something in the order of about, you know, 9%. And wow. settlement day, settlement periods could be three to five days. Um, you know, 9% on a $600 billion flow is $54 billion a year. Now, obviously, that goes to the likes of a, a JP Morgan Chase and, and other well-known money center banks. But, you know, if you're going to have a benefit going to the financial inclusion of people who are not banked, people who are depending upon transfers, you know, being able to work with organizations like Stellar, uh, which was a cryptocurrency at the time, still is now, um, were significant because this is what they were targeting. And so I was very interested in just the ability to reduce financial costs and the friction around fund flows um, on a global scale using cryptocurrencies. And I thought that this was a very good use case and still remains one very much so now. So I, I thought back when I wrote that piece um, that this was one definite area and, and it really has taken root in that regard. Um, so I'm, I'm very, very happy to see that. Now, you know, obviously, given what we talked about earlier, um, well, we have said that artificial intelligence is important in terms of driving productivity. I really think that maybe the major driver here that's going to be driving Web3 um, is the advent of quantum computing, uh, because the extent to which it imperils other pre-existing cybersecurity standards. So in that regard, we're looking at a whole legacy IT infrastructure that arguably is going to need to be rewritten um, around Web3, just given what's taking place around the computing environment. So there's a tidal wave of a threat coming, basically, and we're in this tiny little outdated hut, and we need to basically match the size of it, right? Well, you know, Nostradamus is always good about, like, foreseeing doom, black things on the, feet, on the <laughs> yeah. horizon, so, like, you know, run for cover. But, no, there, there's no cover to run to in this case. You, you're going to have to rebuild. Mm. And I guess you kind of have to think like a hacker, right, to, to be able to build these technologies. You have to almost uh, predict what types of, of threats are going to exist. Am I right? Well, you know, it, it, I am happy to say that uh, my colleagues have, have won hacker contests <laughs> at places like Black Hat. Um, but we like to think of ourselves as being ethical. 
uh, in yeah. this regard. So, you know, we, we're not out there doing it for fun and profit and illegality. Uh, we're doing it for legality and, and out there try to basically um, do a service to the ecosystem and do well yeah. by doing good. Yeah, I mean, hacking is the part of the baseline of what you do. It, it, it's all about it, you know. You, so understanding it and understanding vulnerabilities and, and backdoors and everything else like that is part of your day-to-day -day routine. So, it's true. Yeah. But you know, the day that you see me form uh, an organization called Sutton Associates, you should start to worry. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I got you. No, but it, it does seem like in order to know your enemy in that sense, if if that's the hacker, you have to sort of understand how they work, and you have to really get get involved at that level um just curious uh so people who who are looking at fio right now they're curious about how it can help their business they want to jump in uh, where should they start what are the questions they should be asking obviously i think they can go to gofio.com but uh what should they be thinking about i mean what they should be thinking about is that you know what's the level to which they want to scale um, and, you know, what have they done from a development standpoint in terms of actually building with security requirements, cybersecurity requirements in mind? And in that regard, as in our code reviews, we work very closely with developers. We don't just necessarily scope the project, go away and then come back after a certain period of time and said, well, here's your report we're actually iterating very closely with the developers behind on our clients projects and making sure that you know we're going through and understanding what was their approach how could that be augmented and more from the standpoint that if people wanted to come to us they probably could and before they actually start a project and engage with us we probably can be helpful to them in terms of picking the paths that they should pursue mm. Yeah, I think the work you're doing is arguably some of the most important work being done in the development of Web3 right now. And it is, it's really something that isn't talked about enough. Um, I guess, you know, as we sort of wrap up here, uh, we usually like to ask, give us two or three takeaways that you would want our listeners uh, to remember as they, as they leave. Uh, what would those be? Well, first and foremost, you know, cybersecurity is a universal human right. And from that standpoint, you know, people deserve and can get better protection. And obviously they can come to FIO and use FIO ID and do that for free. Um, to entrepreneurs and innovators, you need to build with security in mind. We are operating in an environment that from a cybersecurity standpoint is already hostile. And based upon the technology trends that we look at, quantum computing, uh, it's likely to become more hostile. So cybersecurity becomes increasingly important. The other thing I would just say more broadly for investors is you're not going to find insurers out providing loss coverage. So from a due diligence standpoint, you need to make sure that however it is that capital is being allocated, you know, that the governance principles that are being employed where you're going to invest actually are very mindful of cybersecurity and approach that with a security first perspective. All excellent points. And David, uh, where can people find you? Obviously go fio.com. Is there any place else they should check out? 
Uh, we're also on LinkedIn uh, and we're also on Twitter. And you know, Web three tends to be more Twitter focused, so probably best to look us look at us on Twitter first. Um, we provide a fair amount of content on a weekly basis, talking about developments that we see uh, within Web three and and how we're going about working with our clients and on the projects that we're very proud to be involved in. You've been listening to Web three Unpacked, a conversation with David Garrity president and CFO at FIO. You can learn more about FIO at gofio.com. That's F-Y-E-O for FIO. And you can learn more about Web3 Unpacked at arctai.com. Also, the conversation continues on Discord. Links will be provided below. Thanks for joining us.